you, you listener, have become so cliche. I can't even <laughs> look at you now. 209 episodes, this podcast is cliche. <laughs> look, we were like, here are some examples of tropes and cliches. And I was like, oh, that's our, that's our topic list. That's, that's yeah. what that is. <laughs> <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous Tropical Island in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 209 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about tropes and how to use them in your game. But first the rogue traders wander around the Seer Unknown's battleground in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the acrobat flips out in the character creation forge. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Demigods. Demigods is a new tabletop role-playing game about what happens when mortal life is turned upside down by the discovery of your divine heritage. Yeah, flipped, turned upside down. You know, you were just hanging out in West Philadelphia, playing after school, and suddenly it turns out that you're half god, half human. You know, that's a trope. Is it? Is it really? Uh-huh. Has it been used before? Yeah, the hidden, the <laughs> hidden history, the the hidden bloodline. That's definitely a trope, right? And then sent off, packed away to the west coast, uh, where you're living with other people that you don't know very well, who are supposed to train you in uh, new ways of living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, demigods does bring mythology into the modern day, where you'll take on the role of an epic hero and wield abilities and artifacts inherited from the divine against monsters, evil deities, and the mundane mortal world. Which honestly is what we are all fighting against in it you can play and create epic artifacts mythic monsters and lasting bonds with your fellow demigods so if you love stories like good omens or percy jackson demigods is for you uh also shane we're gearing up for gen con 2019 Mm -hmm. we've done a terrible job of promoting where and when we'll be at gen con but i guess we have some stuff we should announce there are big chunks where we're like, I guess we'll figure it out or we'll do some pickup games. So we'll see. Yeah. So what we'll do, like we always do, is publish our known schedule and suspected schedule on uh, on the website on TotalPartyThrill.com. So uh, it'll be easy to track us that way. And then Twitter will also probably contain our current location at any given moment. Yeah, because, wait, actually, we're there right now. Yeah, uh, this is coming out. Two hours before we head in to pick up our badges and start the first event of our Gen Con, which is the uh, introduction to DMing for D&D. The panel hosted by Mike Ross uh, with me and Victoria Rogers from the Broadswords about um, introduction to D&D. I'm sure it will be a good panel. Uh, I will actually be playing Descent into Midnight with Rich Howard somewhere at that time, but... You know, if you want to see both of us in the same place at the same time, uh, you could come by our Airbnb, I guess. Uh, but <laughs> don't actually do that. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you could come to the Severn Bar in the Omni Severn Hotel, which is, I think, what, right across the street from the convention center? It's across the street from the food truck, like, park. At Friday night at 7 p.m. That's when we're going to show up. We will stay for an indeterminate amount of time, depending on how hungry we get slash how drunk we get. Yeah, I'm going to bring like, we'll bring some games so it won't be too awkward if it's just us. <laughs> so we'll right. sit and play board games in the, in the Omni Severin <laughs> just, bar. Just you and me again, like every day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that bar is uh, is in the hotel lobby. It is not the bar that's just exposed to the lobby that has like three chairs at it. It's the actual like room that's next to Starbucks. It's also got an entrance directly from the street. Yeah, you can get in there even if you don't have a badge. So if you just happen to be in Indianapolis or you live there or, you know, you want to drive in just to see us or some people, uh, there probably should be some other uh, folks from uh, a few other DSPN podcasts as well. So come on by, say hi. Speaking of dropping in, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game, played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games, and on the Death World Iblis Prime in the frontier city of Meridian, the Rogue Traders have set out to establish a colony in the name of the Holy Throne of Terra, and Prophet. And the Rogue Traders have entered the League of the Technogangers with a team comprised of the Honor Guard Captain Horst, Seneschal Trix, and the Astropath Flare. 
Yeah, they rolled in with their ante, uh, which was a bunch of uh, high-level items. They entered the competition, and they took uh, a pill. Shane, was this a red pill? I hope it wasn't a red pill. It was not a red pill. That's good. Okay. Uh, it also was not a placebo, though, because they were suddenly teleported high above an island where they were instructed to search, find gear, and kill their competitors uh, while they were on their way speeding towards the ground. Uh, there was one other instruction. Do you remember what that was, Ishan? Uh Don't use warpy bullshit. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, we'll see how that held up. Hmm. So they landed in the crumbling ruins and found some gear before making their way across a rolling plain towards an item on their towards a location on their map called the Lowland Lake. Along the way, they stumbled across a lone rando who begged for mercy after uh, the rest of his group had been killed, but Flair, of course, promptly executed him with his looted Prapa Chapa, and the number in the sky kept ticking down uh, from 99 uh, down to 62, and just continually kind of ticking down as uh, various groups are eliminated. So never one to heed instructions, Flair decides to keep playing with his psychic powers. Uh, his connection to the warp is strange. It's almost like he's in a, in a fog. It's sort of cloudy. Uh, and every time he tries just the smallest test, he suffers corruption. But he won't stop. He is determined to pierce this veil no matter how much it hurts. Uh, until his experiments are interrupted uh, by a voice that they hear up ahead over like the next rise in the land, uh, he hears like this the shout, "What's up? It's your boy, the Reaper. We're crushing it today in the league." As they creep over the berm, they spot this trio of heavily geared competitors. One of them is being followed by a servo skull, which he keeps turning and shouting at. He continues, "We're feeling good. Got all our gear." He's then interrupted. There's another group that stumbles across them. They promptly blast them to bits, and he shouts, Reaping it! I have no idea what's happening, Shane. Can you explain? Twitch. Twitch is happening. <laughs> okay. Everyone at the table understood exactly what was happening, Ishan. There's a, there's a video game Fortnite angle here, right? Yes? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I gathered. All right. So the party wisely lets these ringers move on without revealing themselves. Uh, but as they're waiting, they see a huge storm gathering just on the edge of the island. So they continue their exploration, dodging uh, other groups. You know, they're, they're trying to keep their body count low. Um, though it appears the island itself is fighting back. So they survive these pestilent clouds. They dodge random hails of bullets. They sidestep a warp miasma that has assumed humanoid shape a time or two. Was that Flair's fault? It feels like Flair's fault. <laughs> that one was not... Well, I mean, sure, everything is Flair's fault. Maybe. All right, so still this storm is brewing on the outskirts of the island. It gradually homes in on them and begins seemingly ushering the survivors toward an area called the Caldera of Pain. And the counter in the sky keeps ticking down. And now it hits 19. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, Shane, we are talking about tropes. Uh, what's a trope besides pretty much everything that was just in the Dynasty Unwarranted recap? <laughs> yeah, so tropes are common conventions, plot devices, setting elements, themes, images of any given genre. Yeah, it's easy to talk about fantasy tropes. So, you know, we all know them. There's uh, someone locked away in a castle, uh, long hair, dragons sleeping and on top of hordes, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but every single genre has them. Princes charming, if you will. Oh, they come in pairs now? Oh, no, no, no. They come by the dozen. Are you kidding? <laughs> Every story has one, and no two are the same. A baker's dozen. Thirteen. Thirteen princes, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I think it's one, two princes stand before you. So there's often uh, a lot of overlap into the tropes between sci-fi and fantasy. And, you know, this makes sense. Like, genres are are not islands, right? Like, people read different ones, and, of course, they, they grow out of each other. So, naturally, the same kinds of tropes show up in different kinds of uh, writing or, you know, movies, TV shows, etc. Yeah, that's the thing about tropes is that they kind of transcend the medium and really apply to the genre, right? So, if there is a story told in fantasy, uh, it tends to share some, if not all, of the tropes of, you know, the fantasy genre um it's also kind of like for fantasy specifically tropes have kind of become this um i don't know almost like bad word right like when 
certainly prior to like the 2000s like fantasy was kind of considered the lower art form and like fantasy tropes were sort of the were were very much viewed as cliches where like they weren't as respected you know like the the epic quest to save you know against uh the the huge evil empire like uh everyone kind of felt like that was played out yeah i'll probably give some props to like tv tropes here the website uh, which, you know, is obviously a deep dive if you ever sort of get stuck in it. Uh, but it makes it pretty apparent that, like, these tropes are certainly not restricted to fantasy. Like, they're in every single genre, and, like, a particular trope crosses genres. You'll you'll find the same trope everywhere. Let's talk about fantasy, because that's the easiest and most relatable and, and you know, most applicable to uh, certainly D&D. Um, so what are some examples of, like, character-related tropes in fantasy? I think probably the simplest one is the chosen one, right? Like it's the protagonist of the story, the one person who like all of this is sort of centering around. Then I think you've got the Dark Lord, who is, of course, the big evil guy or guys or gals who are sort of threatening um, all the, the good and free people of the world. You've got the reluctant hero who may or may not be the same as the chosen one. Also, there's often the mentor who is like the older, more wizened character who has to bring the the heroes along and and make sure that they get started on the right foot. Who may also be the reluctant hero who doesn't want to be the mentor. (laughs) Yeah, no, uh, you could be multiple of these or you can have different people for all of them. I like when the mentor is the Dark Lord. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) I mentored you to finally defeat me and free me from my bonds. Uh, And then, of course, the secret bloodline. Uh, We just talked about in Demigods, right? Turns out you have had the power all along. It has Mm -hmm. been inside you because you are half flying elephant. So if you take all five of those characters, you have Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) Which, of course, is space fantasy. Right. (laughs) Um, I don't know if that's going to make it in, but that's Podcat. (laughs) But this isn't restricted just to characters at all. The tropes themselves pop up in the settings as well. The biggest one for fantasy is, of course, the pseudo-medieval society, right? Like, this is Game of Thrones, this is Greyhawk, this is basically every D&D setting except for Eberron. Right. Uh, We purport to be based on the Middle Ages, but this is really nothing like the actual Middle Ages. Uh, Star Wars is guilty of having single-purpose planets, an entire planet with one biome. Uh, You always think, like, is there, like, a tropical belt on Hoth? Yeah, there's not. <laughs> nope. It just turns out the only nice parts of Hoth are the frozen ones. Wait, what? <laughs> um, that's that's not only like single biome, but that can also just be like planets that are that exist or are, or are civilized or colonized for only a single purpose, right? Like 40k is super guilty of this, where you classify worlds as like hive worlds, planets that just exist to produce people. You know, agro worlds, planets that just exist to produce food. Um. Yeah, they have like fortress worlds, worlds that seem like you shouldn't bother invading them. And yet they still do. <laughs> it's chicken and egg, right? That's right. <laughs> uh, monoculture species, um, you'll get, you know, everyone on this planet acts in a particular way. This is the culture there. And, you know, like Star Trek does this constantly, right? Like all Klingons are the same. All, all Vulcans are the same. Oh, and I mean, of course, D&D, like, Greyhawk treats all orcs the same, like, all elves the same, right? They're they're all, like, if you meet one, you have met them all. They might change names, they might change very short-sighted personality traits, but in the end, like, all elves are haughty, you know? All dwarves are uh, beer-loving Scotsmen. Fortunately, they're also really long-lived, so you never need to introduce new characters. I think the entirety of everything that has been played in Greyhawk, you know, that's the lifespan of one elf, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are evil empires, and every evil empire is the same. Perhaps there are a couple of variations on the type of evil empire. Um, we like slavery, and we don't like freedom of thought, and I'm probably a necromancer who's in charge, or some kind of warlord who developed crazy spells. I'm definitely a gish, right? I'm the evil <laughs> emperor, and I'm a gish. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's also magic is a big tropey element of settings. You know, there's lots of permutations of how that magic works, but magic is is pretty much the core of fantasy. And of course, there's some kind of prophecy, um, some sort of author insert that allows the writer to predict what's going to happen in the future. 
even though of course they are the one who is going to write what happens in the future well it's good that they can hit their own goal babe ruth did it yeah, why can't it. why can't uh ra salvatore come on okay then there's some plot tropes that are also common in fantasy so you've got things like good versus evil or its contrast gray versus evil there's the MacGuffin quest. Uh, the chosen one takes the mentor and the reluctant hero and heads off towards some impossible goal to find the thing that will fix it all. And then a lot of times you have the B plot of like the coming of age, right? So um, the immature hero needs to grow up or the literal child needs to become an adult or, or whatever. Okay, so let's talk a bit about the difference between like what is a trope versus other types of familiar elements in fantasy and and, in games and in books so i think it's kind of a hierarchy of like you have archetypes you have tropes and you have cliches right so archetypes are your common patterns like they are what you see kind of across fiction or not even fiction but like across society like they are the the sort of expected pattern of human interaction yeah, like you can't get away from an archetype. You you can't really like write or game without using or relying on archetypes because they are human culture and like that is what we all live in. Like these are the common touchstones that you use to make a story that even makes any sense. Yep. And then given your setting and archetype, you often have associated tropes. Um, so tropes are those recurring elements that create the patterns for the archetype. But then you've also got cliches, and these are, it's a fine line between a trope and a cliche. A cliche is really an overused trope, and this, is, this happens especially when a trope is being retained for convenience instead of for an actual logical purpose that makes sense within the story. Or I guess more cynically, the other reason you use cliches is because they're more marketable than whatever would actually fit the logic, the internal logic of the world better. Hey, I know that thing. That means I like it. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, it's like Twilight, except... One example uh, of a trope that kind of has become cliche is the civilization that's stuck in time, right? Like it's been steampunk here in this uh, kingdom for 5,000 years. Like what? Like that is, that is not how civilization cycles happen. You know, like even within like, you know, but Greek culture, which was extremely long lived, like there were epics and, and different changes in culture. Looking at you, Star Wars. Mm hmm. The yeah, old, the old republic. Yeah, same as the new republic. <laughs> yeah, like the empire, same as the new order. Like we only have two ideas here. <laughs> uh, also, like we mentioned, the single biome planet. Like it doesn't make any sense anywhere. Um, it's easy to use. Uh, I, I don't know. It's one of those things where like people tend to overlook it because it is so common. But if it's your first time being introduced to it, and you're like an adult. Uh, it's probably going to throw you off. You'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. And also, how does this economy work? Well, that's so that's the funny thing about that as a cliche, right? Is like a lot of times you don't need a single biome planet, right? Like you can have multiple biomes on a planet and only focus on the one continent that has like X quality. But yet still like out of sheer laziness, like you have, you know, Hoth, the ice world. Right, when it could be like at the South Pole of Hoth, Right, <laughs> where it conveniently, because of its rotation, like is the right is pointing the right direction. Right, you know? or the ice asteroid of Hoth would have made sense. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, so the difference between a trope and cliche is like actually pretty tricky because it, you know often people want to subvert a trope, right? Oh, I don't want to do something everyone else has done, so I'll flip it around. Uh, I'll do what is unexpected. But if you do that enough, then that just breeds a, a new a new trope or even like a new cliche it becomes expected that it will be subverted yeah so and this isn't a necessarily a you thing right it's like a collective you right i mean certainly within like a campaign you can overuse tropes that become cliched but but it can also just be like more broadly in the genre right like this trope has become cliche so it might not even really be in your control you you listener have become so cliche i can't even (laughs) look at you now 209 episodes this podcast is cliche <laughs> you're not wrong just pod fade already <laughs> look we were like here are some examples of tropes and cliches and i was like oh that's our that's our topic list so yeah. that is <laughs> hey send in some examples of tropes and cliches so that we have stuff to talk about in the future 
So that's um like like just keep that in mind, right? Is like when you're playing a game that's like a more active and engaged like participation in the fiction than just reading it or watching it or you know consuming it passively. So like the the pace of which tropes become cliche or which subversions become problems or which cliches come back around to kind of being cool like it's just you know much narrower so it can be a couple sessions or a couple adventures or a couple campaigns for a given group where like these patterns will occur so we've been t- kind of talking about like you know tropes as if they are uh tiresome or, or old but when you're running a game or when you're like writing it or even like playing a character in a game, they're actually pretty useful a lot a lot of the times. Like they're they're good to have around, they're good to know, and they're good to use. Yeah, so the first the first thing is like you said, shorthand, right? Like they're they're quicker. Uh they give players a basis to make reliable assumptions. Um you don't need to read three hundred pages of backstory to know that if you're fantasy heroes, you're gonna have to go on a quest. Right. Like, so, you know, if a quest gets offered to you as a player in a fantasy game, your character should probably pick up that quest and go do it. Yeah. You don't need to read a 300 page backstory. It's called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. That's my backstory. (laughs) Right. You know that like my character is going to face his uh, arch rival, the Dark Lord, and they will annihilate each other because because duh. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think this applies to settings as well as characters like you you mentioned that's your character's backstory but it could also be the setting backstory right like you don't have to know every little thing about athis to understand like through the tropes of dark sun um what kind of character you're going to be playing right like it's low magic it's dark there's evil empires galore there's very little hope things break on you all the time right like life is hard scrabble like these are all tropes that work together to kind of inform what type of character you should build that is going to kind of fit in that world and then also what type of story you're going to experience when you go out to the middle of the desert and see if you don't you know die of thirst it becomes the most apparent to me how useful these tropes are when you're dealing with people who uh, aren't familiar with the tropes of a certain genre or like a certain kind of convention, right? So like I can talk to someone who's like played D&D or someone who's in our, into RPGs and be like, hey, we're going to play in Dark Sun. And if you don't know anything about it, it's a, a dying world where, you know, it's very sword and sorcery and you're fighting against like the sorcerer kings. And like everyone goes, oh, I get it. It's like Conan the Barbarian. You're in loincloths. You got bone weapons uh, and you're going to fight people who like use magic and have big armies. Oh, and it's a desert. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. But you talk to people who haven't played D&D or like, you know, haven't read Conan and don't like read fantasy and they're just like, I have no idea what any of those words mean. Start from the beginning. Right. And you're like, all right, well, here, here's a DVD. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, that works like that's me in anime, right? It's like I don't have the exposure to anime. So basically outside of, (laughs) right. So basically outside of watching like, two episodes of record of Lotus war and a few episodes of Pokemon as a kid. Like I don't have any understanding of like where these tropes come from. So when you guys get really excited about playing anime games, I sit there and I go, this is like a different language to me. Like I don't have any like familiarity with the tropes. So when you're talking about why this one is different from that one or how this setting is unique from that one, like they're all just weird to me. Yeah, and this is something like you should keep in mind if you are trying to introduce someone to a, a new kind of genre. Like, just like hypothetically, if we were going to play a Naruto game at at our table, like the first thing I would do is be like, "Hey, okay, here's Naruto. Uh, he's your chosen one. Oh, and look, here's Sasuke. He's his dark rival. Great. Now you know like fifty percent of what you need to know about who these characters are." Yeah, exactly. And and so by hanging hanging the setting on tropes that. I'm familiar with right like I can quickly learn what is this going to be like like what's the look and feel of this of this setting um I think comic books work in in a very similar way Mm -hmm. too right like they they follow like unique patterns that once you kind of get your arms around the tropes like all kind of make a little more sense but to the outsider like how is spider-man fighting uh rhino for the 57th time like why don't they just solve this problem did he not go to jail? I mean, he did, but uh, uh, shut up. Yeah, exactly. 
and this creates like meta expectations at the table, right? Like familiarity offers comfort to people who understand these tropes. Um, players understand the way that their characters should feel in a given situation because that is how they've seen other characters respond in other kinds of fiction that this is mirroring. Yeah, so not only is, do you understand how your character should feel, but you kind of have an expectation for how the other characters will feel. And the players can play with those assumptions, right? So you can surprise the table by doing something that is sort of not the typical path for that kind of trope and setting, or you can sort of lean into it and go along with it. And everybody nods along and says, oh yeah, no, that makes total sense. That's in character. Yeah, like if I if I say, hey... We're going to be playing a game uh, based around like the tragedy of the boy king. Like, th- there's so much baggage there that is useful baggage. You know, I've already told you so much about like the kind of story we're going to play, that the time period it's going to show up, in, show up in, what your roles are going to be, and like what the um, what the drama is going to be centered around. So another thing that's helpful with tropes uh, in role-playing games is that they, they expedite play at the table, right? You spend less time explaining things because like people know what a fae or an orc or a Necronomicon are, right? Like you don't have to explain what, what the assumptions of fae are going to be. All you have to do is narrate the exceptions. So you can tell your, like your storytelling becomes easier when you have tropes to hang things off of. Right. So like, you know, going back to like elves live for 500 years and they're haughty and they like don't really care for humans and they really love their art and they live in the woods, right? Like, cool. If I just say they're an elf, then you're going to make those assumptions. If I say, oh, that person is an elf. And also like, just so you know, like all elves in this world are vampires. Like that's a different thing about them. Like, okay, cool. Like I just learned everything I needed to know about elves in six words. Yeah. Except that everyone else is like, uh, yeah, duh. Elves are vampires always, always <laughs> right, yeah, leeching you're... off the rest of us, living forever, looking down on us. You know they call us cattle. <laughs> That's why elves love moonlight. Too much. Okay. <laughs> Get some sun. Uh, so a fun thing that you can actually do with tropes uh, that makes them useful, even if you don't necessarily want to like use them whole, is you can deconstruct them. Um, that allows you to sort of like take the pieces apart, you know, remix them. You can like play them straight. You can ignore them. You can subvert them. It gives you like um, a, a richness within a single genre by like choosing which tropes you're going to use and which tropes you're absolutely not going to use. And people don't necessarily know which it's going to be. Yeah, I think... Um... A lot of times, like, fiction writers have to do this in order to find space in the market, right? Of, like, it's like this thing, except this trope is different, right? Or, like, we changed this assumption, and now it's, like, a different world from Game of Thrones. But it's the same focus, right? Like, in a role-playing game, like, you don't have to be quite as cynical uh, about that. But, like, it's still, like, it's cool to see, like... You know, even if you're playing D&D consistently, right? Like if each person, each GM you play with has their own little take on the setting, like you're going to have a different D&D experience kind of within the same umbrella. Yeah. And like, it's fun, right? You can even at the table, just choose which tropes you want to use, right? Like, hey, we're playing Hunger Games, uh, except you're in mechs and you're fighting for the Iron Throne. Like, I'm in. I'll I'll play that game. Well, hang on. Hang on. Um, (laughs) Don't give away the good stuff for free. (laughs) That is a Patreon-only idea. You you know, like, you could also just do the simple things, right? Like, you've got your basic medieval fantasy, except the characters are all agents of the evil empire, right? Like, that's not the story as you usually tell it. Right. High fantasy, but magic causes corruption that creates monsters. Uh, I mean, that that's what Dark Sun used to be. Uh, yeah, and it's also basically birthright. And 40K. <laughs> Actually, I guess it's, <laughs> it's kind of leaning in, isn't it? <laughs> you could also, you know, things like uh, you've got high fantasy, but magic is granted by the gods, and the strength is based on the number of followers of those gods. So your magic might wax and wane as you do the deeds that attract followers for your deity. Great. Magic is social media. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, they did that episode on community. It did was they? terrible. <laughs> all right. So, of course, all things in moderation. Uh, using tropes too much or in the wrong ways can be pretty bad. Yeah. So we talked about cliches, right? Um, I think 
cliche, of course, has sort of a negative connotation. I think in reality, uh, in role-playing games, a couple cliches aren't usually a problem. You know, like, they're the things that players can lean in on, celebrate the cliches, and sort of know that they're getting a refreshing break in other in other areas of the game. Yeah, and it makes a player, you know, feel good when they can sort of point out the obvious cliche and actually sort of, like, feel a bit like, you know, they, they got one over on the GM. Like, I saw straight through this. And the GM can be like, yes, yeah, you totally did. Totally did. Yep. It's also an easy way of like telegraphing uh, who an NPC is. Like if they really are like this simple and like cliched as a person, that tells you a lot about that character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always a little bit weird feeling as the GM when a player calls out a cliche. You know, like it's like, oh, okay, this is the guy who's going to betray us. And like as the GM, you're like, but is he? Like, does he need to be? Should I, should I like go with this cliche or should I actually subvert it? You know, but if you don't have the cliche there, like you don't have that choice. And you, like the players enjoy that play experience too, right? Like because a role playing game is not just fiction on a page, because there is like sort of the meta experience of being players at a table, like the players get the enjoyment, even though that has nothing to do with the fiction of their characters. Yeah, it's like playing Punch Bug. Like, hey, hey, so I see that cliche. I see it. I see it there. Oh, I see one over there. This is cool. This is good. <laughs> yeah. and, and there can actually be like this meta game that is fun where people are sort of anticipating how the cliche or the trope is going to play out. Right? Like, wait, uh, is is this where it gets played straight or or is this inverted? Like, are they betraying us or are they definitely not? Because that would be too obvious. Which one is it? I don't know. Yeah, I obviously cannot choose the glass in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> They're always all poisoned, you idiots. <laughs> um, but then the caution here, like when cliches go bad, of course, is that like repetition of cliches breeds contempt. Uh, you know, if the princess is always in another tower and you never feel like you make any progress, like, cool, like, that is definitely a trope. The princess is in another tower, but at a certain point, it's just aggravating, and the players will rebel against you. Right. Uh, forget that princess, and we're not going anywhere near a tower. I don't care. Yeah, exactly. I'm done with this. Like, she can she can go call an Uber then. Oh, another dungeon. Woo, great. Okay. Uh, l- let me guess. There's a powerful artifact uh, inside that we need to, to put together with the six other pieces that we've already got, Yeah. Uh, and we're not going to get to use it is that right we have to give it to somebody else awesome super glad i'm on board for this one why doesn't elminster just go get it himself yeah why is he so lazy because he's busy like we'll go solve that problem and elminster can take care of this okay (laughs) exactly uh and overuse of cliches also results in pretty generic fantasy like if every story uses the same old tropes, then every story feels the same and sounds the same. You need a bunch of variety and variation on familiar aspects in order to make it engaging. Yeah, and the thing that I I see this a lot engaged on the internet, right, where people can easily share this information of like people talk about their homebrew world and like what like how it is and what happens at their table and like what their group is doing. Or a lot of times like you'll see Kickstarter projects or different things where like people are adapting their, their games, like their tables setting to be like a book or something. And like, I look at it and I'm just like, cool. Like that is definitely a fantasy setting. Like it has all the tropes, but it doesn't have anything else. You know, it's like you just like checked six boxes off of TV tropes and like, I I don't really need to, by your setting to get some new proper nouns you know like there there needs to be something that kind of like grabs you is like oh this is different like i haven't seen this before like i want to know like how that plays out and like what the different permutations of that end up being when like you know the uh like you said like it has social media magic right like i'm interested in, in what that would do to like your typical fantasy setting like i i would i would be interested in reading that book you know, but I'm less interested in reading like, oh, it's it's the new Forgotten Realms. Like, I the old one is fine. Like, I I'm not going to get significantly more out of it with different names. I mean, the old Forgotten Realms is not fine, but it could only get worse with social media magic. Well, yeah, I mean, the old Forgotten Realms is the old Forgotten Realms. Like, it, <laughs> like it, it it is exactly Forgotten Realms. I'll tell you that. Wait, Shane, hear me out. What if Forgotten Realms gets social media magic, but all that magic is corrupting um as you do okay look we can't get too meta <laughs> okay 
Yeah, it gets too confusing. Um, that's putting like too many ingredients in the pot, right? Like it's too hard to predict what you're going to get out of it or like what people are going to take away from it. So the inverse of that sort of generic trope problem is the constant subversion of tropes so that nothing feels familiar. You know, like if if you change every trope, if you subvert everything, you end up losing the archetype that you were attempting to create, right? So you, you have to be careful, like make a few things different and interesting, but don't make everything foreign and alien or else no one's going to know what's going on. Right. You're just totally lost. And then you miss out on the positive aspect of the trope, which is, you know, familiarity and shorthand. And then something I see more often in like um, kind of improv oriented games or or like the sort of games where um, you do some kind of like group world building or like you a lot of times you like world build right in front of your role. So um, like Powered by the Apocalypse games have this happen um, or like Fate, different things like that, where you can end up with sort of unpredictable subversion of tropes. Right. So like you know, because you rolled a certain thing, like this element of the world is changing to accommodate that role. Um, you can run into this problem where if you don't hold certain things constant, like players won't trust the tropes that they see. Like, so not only are they not useful anymore, like they add confusion. Like, I don't know how to act because what I expected for, you know, us signing up to play um, Weird West Right. Well, as I was expecting six guns and uh, and riding horses and things like that. But if you're telling me that, like, because of a weird role, all of a sudden I have a uh, an Uzi and a dirt bike. Okay, yeah, it's weird. (laughs) But now none of the tropes make any sense because I can invalidate all of the things that happen in the West. Right. This is not the weird West that I was expecting in any way. And it's and it's not different variations of that right it's not deadlands weird west uh and it's not wild wild west weird west uh, and it's not westworld weird west you've given me something completely unexpected and i do not know where you're going so i cannot follow you right yeah and i i don't know what my character should be doing in this setting right like i like the question of what would you do with you know like if you had a spaceship in 18 whatever 1880 right like I don't know. Like, tell me the story. (laughs) What's going on here? Right. What does the U.S. government look like? Is there radar? I need to know these things. (laughs) Right. I guess I'd have plenty of room to land it. All right. So I feel like we're kind of hammering this home. Um, Tropes are tropes for a reason. Uh, They are familiar. People understand them. People know what you're talking about. It's an excellent shorthand. And they work when they're used judiciously. And I think if you're running a game or you're playing in a game, you're already using them. So the best thing to do is not try to like pull back away from them so that like your you feel like your game is, or the story that you're telling is like so completely amazingly unique because like it's not because you have 40,000 years of human storytelling behind you. Yeah, <laughs> there's only what, seven stories? <laughs> if that, right? <laughs> there's two, there's success and there's failure. All right. Yeah. By the way, they all happen in the Bible. So, like, <laughs> one book covered them all. Just tell all Bible stories, and there's way more gore than most D and D games. <laughs> I, yeah, there's some wanton violence. So the best thing to do is know that you're using the tropes and try to use them well uh, in a way that makes uh, the game more engaging for your players or the um, the other people sitting at the table that you're playing in. Yeah. So what I like to do when I'm sort of setting up campaigns or setting up games and and this is you know whether it's a homebrew setting or i'm actually playing in an established setting is i like to take a few core tropes of the archetype or or the genre right and hold them sacred right like these are the things that are absolutely true of this game and like we we aren't going to mess with that like the players can rely on that then I'll take a few more tropes of the genre and sort of play with them a bit around the edges, right? Like make them a little bit different from what you typically see, but still very familiar. And then I'll take one or two things and totally subvert them, right? So this is like what you thought would it was going to be, but now it's different, right? And so like a good example of that with Rogue Trader is the very first thing that happened, or well, not the very first thing, but like, I don't know, the first major plot event that happened 
to you was your rogue trader died right like you're playing rogue traders you work for a rogue trader you're supposed to have a rogue trader your rogue trader is dead what do you do right like that is a very different game from what the typical rogue trader game is pretend it never happened (laughs) obviously (laughs) we played it straight what do you do you lie you absolutely did (laughs) i mean you you could have restored the status quo and got yourselves a new one but you said nope we'll go without (laughs) we could have restored the status quo and uh had our warrant of trade taken away (laughs) maybe and then had us booted out and uh you know stuck on some terrible forge world you know those places have only one biome garbage (laughs) it's forge (laughs) (laughs) yeah this like cobbling together a familiar uh and inverted or subverted parts uh make sure that there's enough familiarity so people know what they're doing, but uh, there's enough new to keep them interested and to keep the story moving forward, right? Like, if everything is the same as it has been before, then we all know how this story ends. Mm-hmm. But you change a couple things, flip them around, and suddenly, like, this could go anywhere, and now it's up to us, which is kind of the point of these games anyway. Yeah. And, I mean, I think if you look at a lot of the classic adventure modules, you see sort of a similar a similar arc to them, right? Like, they hang on a few tropes of adventures, and then each of them has that unique thing about them, right? Like, that trope that they've subverted, um, and, and that's what makes them memorable, right? Like, the thing that people remember about uh, Expedition to the Barrier Peaks is definitely not the seven tropes that they dutifully honored on their, like, on their way to creating a dungeon, it's the fact that they completely subverted the fantasy genre by adding uh, a spaceship as the dungeon. Which was like just a very few years into this, into like D&D, right? Yeah. They were like, you know what's really played out? Dungeons. Dungeons. <laughs> Spaceships and dragons. That's the future. <laughs> uh, and this is, I mean, this is how they made new settings, right? Like yep. Dark Sun was like, magic's too easy. Forget yeah. this. <laughs> Green sucks. Make it yellow. <laughs> dragons. Dragons are played out. Dungeons are cool. Dragons suck. Right. <laughs> Do you hear that, Ishan? That's the sound of Tony Stark hammering together multiple genres to create the Avengers, who are uh, spy fiction, Norse mythology, and uh, sci-fi mech anime. And Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah, yeah, you're right. All stuck together. Uh-huh. Um, plus, let's let's put in a magician with a goatee. Why not? Why not? <laughs> All right. Well, since we've got about 11 characters to sort out here, it's time to move on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. So this week, Total Party Thrill is brought to you by Rob Tui. Yet yeah, Rob has a 32% market share of the virtual tabletop titles on DMs Guild, and he wants to help game designers convert their RPG products into Fantasy Grounds files for sale on the site. I feel like I've seen this trope before, and he once he reels you in, he subverts this uh, by, I don't know, giving you the keys to his candy factory or something like that. Uh, <laughs> he subverts it with good service and quality products. <laughs> Which is what you're not expecting. At no cost? That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) He does all the work, so there's no risk. Yeah, so that's what he does, right? You bring him the product, he converts it all for you, and then you guys share the revenue. So Rob gets paid via revenue split. He maintains the files uh, along with any updates that you make uh, or changes as you publish them to the DMs Guild. And they're sold separately on the Fantasy Grounds Marketplace, so it doesn't affect your PDF sales or your revenue whatsoever. So Rob's a community developer for Fantasy Grounds. He's on their social media team, so he knows the virtual tabletop platform very well. And he's been publishing on the DMs Guild since the very beginning, January 2016. So if you'd like to see some of the projects that Rob has worked on, just search his name on the DMs Guild, Rob Tui, T-W-O-H-Y. And you can also find him almost anywhere on the internet as Rob, the number two, the letter E. On Twitter, on Twitch, on YouTube, on Discord, Patreon. Just Google him. He wants to work with you. Bold move, Rob, telling people to Google you. 
Don't Google me. Yeah, please don't Google me. <laughs> Google Rob. Yeah. And uh, yeah, get your products in the hands of more people. All right. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the tropally named acrobat. Uh, well, it's a tropeze artist, if you recall. Good job. Good job. There. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you made us on a tropical island today. Don't I, even. That was me. me. That was all me. <laughs> that's where. That's where we live. Tropical island was my favorite dual land in Magic: The Gathering. Uh huh. Yep. One blue, one green, or one sigh. <laughs> <laughs> well, how many sighs to get a colorless mana? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the conversion rate is anymore. It keeps changing. <laughs> I mean, what with Brexit looming. Yeah. All right. So. We're calling this just the acrobat, the acrobat, not the thief yes. acrobat. So the acrobat is uh, is basically going to be your jumpsman. Um, you know, good at athletics, good at acrobatics. Uh, Did you say jumpsman? Is that an actual jumpsman. word? Nope. <laughs> I know. I, I dig it. Right. I, I, this is my punchsman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mean your monk? Sure. Yeah, why not? And <laughs> <laughs> this is my kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> so what we've tried to do here and i i fully admit this is kind of silly uh is weaponized jumping uh you you just hold down triangle is that it or was it x I don't know. uh well okay yes uh there's that it's space bar thank you actually in um Baldur's gate for the ps2 was that it you could actually uh get around more quickly just by constantly jumping like jumping was ever so slightly faster than walking Oh, I mean that is that has been true in many games for a long time. Uh, like that was the whole basis of like the Scouts Knives mod for Counter Strike was you would jump and strafe, and that gave you just a little speed boost, and you would end up flying over time. Every yeah. everything games is terrible. are dumb. All right, so the play here. Right? Yes, like, what is the we're build? Gonna, we're going to make an acrobat capable of doing acrobatic things, climbing, jumping, uh, all that sort of thing. Um, but how are we going to actually make this playable? Uh, basically, your idea here is going to be that you will grapple, jump as high as you can, and then drop the target. Uh, they will, of course, take damage when they fall. They will land prone, and then you can just pummel them. Uh, it turns out this is actually a free shove. You don't need to grapple and then shove. Uh, as I was reading the rules more closely, there's nothing that prevents this. So go nuts. So this is uh, that move that Guile from Street Fighter does where he leaps up in the air and, and grabs you. Was, is that the backbreaker? Uh, yeah, there's also the um, the original Smash Brothers has a character that like leaps up, grabs you, and then blasts you off. I think it's Captain Falcon does it. That makes sense. Or maybe it's Samus. I think it's Samus. Maybe it's Kirby. Maybe it's Fox. I don't know. It's been a while. <laughs> All right. What's the build? Okay. The build is Rogue 2, Barbarian 1, Monk 17. Oh, and we need magic items. I'm not even going to pretend we're not going to use magic items. Cool. Good to know. I'm glad you work so hard on this. All right. So yeah. a couple of rules <laughs> to keep in mind. Uh, falling damage is 1d6 non-magical bludgeoning damage per 10 feet that you fall. Uh, you will obviously want to be starting at seven feet tall, so that might limit your racial selection a little bit um, because the rule is that you can hold something or you can reach uh, one and a half times your height, which means if you are grappling something, you can then pick it up over your head and drop it 10 feet while standing. Uh, this will, of course, be an important distinction because it's an extra D6 damage. Variant human. There are people who are seven feet tall. Don't tell me I can't be a person who's seven uh, feet tall. I'm Yao Ming. That, uh, that's human, right. Rogue barbarian I'm pulling monk. up Wikipedia right now, and I'm showing you a list of people who are more than seven feet tall. We're done. We're good. So uh, what we care about here is your high jump, and high jump has a pretty unfavorable formula. So it is uh, you, your high jump height is three plus your strength mod uh, if you have moved 10 feet in the turn. So uh, we're working basically at 14 strength. We're talking about jumping five feet in the air. So we've got to we've got to figure out a way to maximize that. Don't worry, though. We're, yeah, well, there are some ways to to fix this. All right. So from your single level of barbarian, you are of course getting rage, which gives you advantage on strength checks and saving throws, which will include your grapple. Uh, you will also uh, take two levels of rogue to get uh, plus one d6 damage on our sneak attack which of course will trigger whenever we have a prone opponent 
and expertise on athletics and acrobatics. And at second level, you get cunning action, which just gives you more speed in your round. I mean, I like the idea of hiding first. (laughs) Is springing out of nowhere. So it's a surprise grapple. (laughs) (laughs) All right, from Monk, martial arts, so you can punch unarmed for 1d10 damage with, I believe it says any part of your body. So, you know, dealer's choice. Uh, It'll give you an additional 30 feet of movement for 60 feet, uh, which, of course, you can really stretch out if you want to with that cunning action. Uh, Then you'll also get key, uh, which you'll mostly be using for flurry of blows, which is one key point for two extra unarmed attacks as a bonus action. But you can also use it for step of the wind. Uh, You can drop a key point to disengage or dash as a bonus action, but it'll also double your jump distance and uh, you can make these jumps uh, without having a running start. Then since you're jumping so much, it's definitely handy to have slow fall at fourth level. So you can reduce your falling damage by five times your monk level as a reaction. Um, That is enough to cover uh, the maximum damage you can take from falling. So you'll be fine. Yeah. And the rule is if you uh, don't take any damage from your fall, you land on your feet rather than prone. You also get evasion, and at level 11, you'll get tranquility, which is basically a very long-lasting sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can make sure that you line yourself up for the perfect moment <laughs> to do your jump trick. Like, perhaps just waiting around until they get close to an edge, something like that. Hey, uh, I'm not hitting you. I'm not hitting you. You can't do anything. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to grapple you. Right. Leap high in the air, drop you, and then punch you in the face. But I haven't done it yet. <laughs> I haven't done it yet. So then at 17th level, you get Quivering Palm, which is, of course, like your kind of capstone ability, right? This lets you uh, just kill somebody if they fail a constitution save. All right. Tell us about this magic item, this cheating that you're doing. Okay. So we're going to need a Ring of Jumping, which lets you cast Jump on yourself as a bonus action. Uh, that's it. That's all you need. It triples your jump distance for a minute. No concentration and uh, no attunement? Uh, it does take attunement. that's fine you only need the one and there are also boots of striding and springing which will triple your jump distance Uh, that's also requires attunement but that's an always on item so uh, what this lands uh, with your uh, jumping is you will have a 5 foot vertical and you will have a 3x, 3x and 2x modifier uh, plus the 10 feet from your height which will ultimately get you to uh 50 feet total and 5d6 damage. Just any time you grapple somebody, you drop them for 5d6 and they are now prone. I will say I don't think there are any specific rules on exactly how these additional multipliers stack. So we've gone conservative, yes? Yeah, so this yeah. is this is multipliers for your base. Right, I'm, not I'm just... sure there are some people out there who can be like, no, this adds up to 142 feet. Well, those people are fine to do that if but that works I your am, table then you yeah, do it you exactly. do you <laughs> uh you then you're just going to be capped by your movement speed which is 60 feet so it's not a huge difference for you so uh you can also get an extra 15 feet of um of vertical distance by using the open hand technique um to push your target 15 feet for one key point of course you will leap with them over your head and then push them straight up in the air 15 feet uh, getting yourself an extra at least d6 damage. Ha-ha! Yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's all you can really say. <laughs> You've left in the air and thrown somebody. <laughs> GMs, just let this work. <laughs> right. It's so dumb. Re- re- yeah, reference the Beast of Burden, just let this work. <laughs> so if you want to get extra cheesy and extra acrobatic, uh, there's, there's a way to improve this further um, by using climbing. So... Uh, at higher levels, because you'll you'll need the higher speed in order to really benefit from this. Uh, but at higher levels, uh, a potion of climbing is a common consumable magic item that gives you a climb speed equal to your movement for an hour. So you can use that climb uh, with your excess movement before you high jump in order to maximize the damage um, up to uh, what will be 76, um, potentially using a key point for that open hand push, you can get up to 8d6. So for leveling order, just uh, you know, start with rogue, then take barbarian, then take all your monk levels, and then finish out your rogue. Uh, leveling order isn't super important here because you'll you'll always be able to do your silly trick. So Shane, who is your acrobat? Uh, my acrobat is a uh, 
disciple of an air elemental. Uh, one who wants to uh, cannot fly, right? And in fact, because they are not an air elemental uh, themselves, like their worship would be profane if they learn to fly. Um, but they want to experience as much time in the air as possible uh, and prove that um, air as an element is superior to all others. Um, so sort of, I guess, an air cultist, if you will, Um perhaps by the name of Jordan. Um, and so Jordan uh, goes around and showing off his, like by worshiping the element of air is um, like grabbing people, bringing them to great heights uh, and then, you know, seeing if they can handle it. And anybody who survives, you know, he probably considers worthy and anybody who doesn't, it's just another sacrifice for the God of air. I find it ironic that this, Air Jordan is doing uh, most of their damage with the Earth. <laughs> hey, <laughs> he. I mean, <laughs> that's heresy. <yeah>. Sure, <laughs> shut up. He's a jump man. <laughs> also, he has amazing shoes, boots of striding and springing, if you will, and multiple rings, and like like five rings. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, how about your acrobat? My acrobat uh, is a monk, and she is extremely focused on developing her own style of martial arts, which she calls eagle style, not because she has a talon-like palm strike, uh, but because she grabs opponents, like eagles do, soars high into the air, and then drops them onto the rocks below to crush them like turtles. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Except she was kicked out of her monastery when she accidentally threw an enemy on top of the bald pate of her mentor. <laughs> Mistaking it for a rock far below. <laughs> and now she wanders the world, perfecting her technique in the hopes of founding her own monastery someday. I just, I just can't imagine any group... <laughs> being willing to partner up with these two characters you don't need a group you're so effective on your own like, I, I don't care if we win every fight this is embarrassing <laughs> like I can't be seen in public with you you embarrass me it's really more like, I don't care if we win every fight I'm, th- I'm jumping and throwing this person ugh <laughs> <laughs> uh. All right, before we wrap up, let's take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters who, despite our best efforts, continue to give us money. All right, so what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about playing in virtual realities. And in the Character Creation Forge, we're building the Minesweeper. Well, that's it for episode 209 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. This week, Total Party Thrill is brought to you by Nerdarchy. Out of the Box Encounters is Nerdarchy's first Kickstarter, and it's already funded and is smashing through the stretch goals, like an anarchist wearing a bandana soaked in vinegar smashing the stores of a bank. It's like it's like they took this Kickstarter, they they leapt 60 feet into the air, and then dunked it, <laughs> just like Air sense. Jordan, the jump man. <laughs> the jumpsman. There's more than one. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the Book of Encounters is designed to make running 5th edition D&D effortless. Yep. Each encounter in the book is full of content and can be used to fill in the gaps between adventures, hook your characters into a new story, or have entire campaigns built around them. It's packed with wilderness and dungeon encounters. Uh, the, books has, the book has all areas of play covered from sword and spell slinging to puzzles and social interaction. Uh, I I really like this idea. Um, I think this is a really cool book because when we talk about adventures, you know, usually what I do is I go through and I just look for the encounters and I'm like, what can I steal? What can I steal? What can I steal? Um, This book, I don't even have to worry about ignoring half the book. I can just read just the encounters and steal what I want. It's like it's designed for me as a GM. To steal. That's very anarchic. Yeah. And then when I'm done with it, I dunk it on the players' heads. (laughs) From high above. Because they're bald? I don't that know. That will kill them. We have a bald player. It's true. 
He wouldn't die, though. He's tough. Yeah. So, the Nerdarchy team is collaborating with amazing people to make this book a reality, including Matt Mercer and, more importantly, DSPN's own Lisa Penrose and James Intricasso. Yeah, you might have heard of those two. Um, I don't know about that Matt Mercer guy. Uh, I wouldn't trust him. No. Mm-mm. What kind of person changes their voice all the time? It's like wearing a mask for your a doppelganger. mouth. He's a doppelganger. Confirmed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. thoughts. So, if this sounds interesting, check out the awesomeness at nerdarchy.com.